Welcome to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative, a podcast that challenges what it means to be a high performer. Here are your hosts, Lauren Williams and Rob Kalvaroski. We are back. Welcome back to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative. I'm Rob Kalvaroski, and as always, we have our in-house performance coach and former first overall draft pick, Lauren Williams. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm telling you, that intro never gets old. Uh, <laughs> I love it. And it seems like we've both got the sun on our sides here, which is nice. So I've just been soaking it up. And you know what? It's a good weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pretty good weekend for me. I went for a run today and it was punishing because I haven't worked out that hard over COVID. So so I'm wiped out. Now, I'm, I'm excited for this one today. One of Actually, the guys that I talk to the most from my MIT career, we have him here today, Ellis Kim. Ellis, how are you? I'm doing great. Um, Thank you so much for having me. I think uh, the podcast that you two are doing is awesome. Um, I think the message you're trying to get out is is really wonderful. And um, I'm just, I feel lucky to be part of it. No, I, I mean... We've like obviously we've talked almost daily for for since we graduated college, and we were we were on the in the trading club together, and we even went to a trading competition in at University of Toronto. But your story to me, it models this show, and it's actually like weirdly mirroring my story where I'm going next with leadership and even with this podcast. So. Like, let's get into it. Do you want to tell everybody, like, who is Ellis Kim? Sure. Um, so I'll give you, I guess I'll, I'll go all the way back. So originally, I'm from California. Um, I'm from near LA. I grew up in the suburbs of LA uh, in a Korean immigrant family. So I was born in the US, but my parents both immigrated from Korea in like the 70s and 80s. Um, I'm the youngest of three. I have an older brother and older sister. And um, I, like both of you, I think, I think that I got a ton of my identity, especially early, earlier in life, from just being a real achiever. So unlike both of you, I was never much of an athlete. Like, I'm a big sports fan. Like, I love talking about sports. But personally, I'm just not much of an athlete. Um, but my area of performance was primarily school. So... I was raised, I would say, implicitly with kind of a single mission, which is to just be a very high achiever in school. And it was kind of understood that if I did that, everything else would kind of take care of itself. And um, I, fortunately or unfortunately, I think that I was good at that, especially like through high school. And I was a good enough student. And I was also lucky enough to uh, get into MIT, which is where we met. And... Um, I, I think that MIT is where my real mental health journey begins because um, that's the first time that I ever saw a therapist. I think it was my first or second year of college. Um, I had some depression. I had a decent amount of anxiety. And um, so I went to MIT Medical, which is like our health center. And the first therapist I ever talked to was a PhD who was finishing his PhD up, doing his in, uh, externship at MIT Medical. And um, I was lucky to have a really positive experience with him. And to be honest, that was almost 14 years ago. And I don't even really remember much of what we talked about. Uh, what I do remember was that he was just very present and very non-judgmental. And um, I think that as I start my own career as a therapist, like I'm, I'm brand new, I just finished school um, in social work. That was a really important lesson for me that I still keep with me now. Um, the specific skills that you have are very important. Training is really, really important. Competence is extremely important, but I think at the end of the day, it's a human relationship. And I think that he put that first and, um, that left an impression on me. Um, but to, to go a little deeper on, um, I think the cause of like my initial mental health struggles, um, I would say the depression, like I, I tend to look at depression as a response to, loss, like in, in like my schooling, that's, that's one way that I learned about it. And I think that, um, my depression when I was in college and also after college, cause I've had depression, you know, on and off for years 
was a response to like a loss of my identity as like the best achiever. I was still a great student. I was still a pretty good student and doing reasonably well um, by MIT standards. But despite that, I just couldn't help but feel like I was coming up short, like I was a failure. Like it felt like a catastrophe, even though I think with the benefit of hindsight, it, it really wasn't. But um, in the moment, it really, it really felt awful. Um, and so that, um, you know, that concept that depression is a response to loss, I, I think I felt that very personally. It can be a loss of something very concrete. It can be the loss of money or the loss of a job, a person, obviously. Um, but I think that um, one very big way that it can affect people is a loss of part of, you know, your self-concept. And that's what it was for me. Yeah, I love that. And I like, I, you know, what you said about, you know, like doing well in college and it feels like a failure. Like, I think that's such a common experience for almost anyone that went to MIT or anyone that goes to college in general is just like, yeah. there are people there that are way smarter than us. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And that was, um, that was a shocking experience for me. And it wasn't just like a little bit smarter. These people blew me away. And um, I, so I, I moved to New York and I was there for, for the next 10 or 11 years. And I just moved back to the exact area where we went to college. So like our, my dorm is actually just down the street. And I'm, I'm blown away by the people that I went to school with um, by just the caliber of students and I think that I have just like just a little bit of um, imposter syndrome where I say like, Oh, like, I don't even know how I like fit in with these people. Like, I don't even know how I got into this school um, just because some of these people are just so impressive or, I mean, most of them are really, really impressive. But I think what you said, Rob is really true. I think that it's a really, really common experience for people um, that we went to college with to, to experience what I experienced. Yeah, I I also want to touch too on this idea of like, you know, you're in high school and you're doing so great to the to the point where like you identify yourself as you were basically the best student, um, and then you get into um, a college where you have just all of the best students from everywhere because we know the pedigree of that school, um, and I think that the I, the idea and the journey and the path of somebody who goes from big fish, tiny pond to little minnow in the ocean is, is one that is not talked about nearly enough um, and is so common too, um, especially for high achievers who um, depend so much on all of those external validators of like, hey, you're getting straight A's. Hey, you're doing better than your peers. Hey, Lauren, like you're doing great at hockey. Let's throw you in somewhere else where we're going to show you a million ways to think that you're not doing well. Um, I mean, that was my experience too. So I really identify with that. And I think that, um, yeah, it's just, it's always nice to hear when other people are like, yep, I went through that same thing. <laughs> I think so. And Lauren, Rob, I don't know if you had the same experience that I did, um, but especially earlier in life, like when I was in high school, I think that I was very self-motivated. And um, I think my parents, for example, they might've pushed me more earlier in life, but by the time I got to high school, I was extremely self-motivated. So they didn't even really have to push me. In fact, I think I probably internalized that and really, really doubled and tripled down on it. So I pushed myself harder than they could push me. And it worked at least in the short term and I had academic success. Um, but I think that when I saw that early success, um, people like my parents were happy that I could just kind of manage myself. And I think that my ability to reach out for help and my ability to, um, or, or even just having like a network of people that I could reach out to and say like, wait, something isn't working or something isn't right. I think that was really degraded, at least for me, um, because I think that I, I had reached a level of self-sufficiency that, um, that ultimately ended up being unhelpful to me or, yeah. Look, I, 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 you're, you're, you're talking my language, right? And I think like I had the same 
it was in the in the pool though right like i started playing polo and then i was very self-motivated when i was like you know 13 14 and that's where i started training in the summer i started adding a swim team to do an extra three workouts a week i started doing all these things that my parents like they supported me but it wasn't their plan for me it wasn't their idea and I had that same, like basically that same experience. And what I realized actually Friday when I was in therapy um, was I never realized how much shame drove me in every aspect of my life. Mm-hmm. And it was wild. Like we were doing this timeline um, as part of like an EMDR type of therapy. And it was like, there was a lot early there was a ton, like the most I think was 13 to 18, like basically 13 through freshman year of college. Then there was a fair amount from about 18 to 25. 25 was like this, this milestone. Well, we stopped, we called it a milestone because it was when I almost took my own life. And then basically there was nothing from, from post-suicide attempt to 31 or 32. And my, even my therapist was shocked on that. And she said to me, like, basically she thinks like I buried it and caused myself to have PTSD from this. Mm -hmm. And then like, it starts again, basically when Lauren's boss opened up my emotions and now the shame cycle has started again. And it's like a really, it's wild. Like I never even thought about it that way. And now I, I kept, I kept looking at it over the last few days and thinking about it. And it's like, I don't know how I did it for so long, honestly. Yeah. Shame, shame is an extremely powerful fuel. <laughs> I think that maybe all of us can have our own version of that. Like it, <laughs> it, it's just an incredible motivator, but um, in the long run, it's actually quite destructive. It's like, I guess it's a very powerful, but dirty fuel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we're talking about too is is while we're learning how to push ourselves as as high achievers, we're not yet high performers. Um, we're taking in all of these cues from the people that are around us. And you know, even if uh, acing your first year in school was really hard, and you had to do some th- things that you know didn't really agree with you, or you had to, I don't know but you, you get all that positive reinforcement from other people and you start to say to yourself, well, this just must be how it is. I can't be the only one who's experiencing this. So I guess we're all just functioning in this land of that didn't feel good, but everybody else around me is telling me it should feel good. So I'm just going to keep doing it, (laughs) which is when you get into that shame motivator of like, who am I, who am I going to talk to about this? I can't start performing any differently than I am now. Well, I appreciate so much what you just said. Um, I think the ability to have, to feel something and to be able to accurately identify what you're feeling, it sounds so simple, but I think that when you're in environments that confuse you or that tell you, oh no, you're not feeling that or you shouldn't feel that, I think if you get that kind of conditioning for enough years, it becomes very, very confusing because at a certain point, you don't even know yourself what you're feeling. You know, something's not right. Mm -hmm. You say like, am I feeling like pain or shame or anxiety? Like, and, and it's just, it becomes this jumble. Um, But yeah, I I really appreciate you bringing that up. Oh, absolutely. I think it's something that is, it's so common among high achievers it's crazy. Yeah. So Alice, I wanted to ask you, like jumping off that, like, how did you feel when you graduated MIT? Like I had this feeling when I was standing on that stage where I was like, this doesn't feel the way I thought it should, or Mm -hmm. it's supposed to like, how did you feel? I think I had a feeling like that a little bit later when I was working, but, um, I think when I finished school itself, I felt, um, I think I felt okay, but th- this is, this is part of, um, what I was just saying to Lauren, like, I don't, I don't think I felt bad, but I d- 
didn't feel particularly good. I was just like, okay. Um, and I think that that emotional constriction has not served me well. It's not that I want to be that way. It's probably from a series of experiences and, um, you know, struggles that, that I am that way, but I don't think I felt too much of anything in either direction when I finished MIT. I think um, many people would have said, you should feel great. It's such a big accomplishment. And whether I went there or not, if someone graduated from MIT or any school, I would say that is such a big accomplishment. It takes a lot to do that. Um, but if I'm giving my honest answer, I don't, I don't remember feeling too much about it. But I also didn't have the experience you had where you, where you said, um, this should feel better, or this, should, this should feel different. I don't think I had that experience as well. Um, but if I fast forward a little bit, so after MIT, I worked at uh, an investment bank in New York um, for about a year. And then after that, I worked at a hedge fund um, that I worked at on and off um, for about seven years. So that, that's the job that I've had for the longest period of time. And so when I was at that hedge fund, I was an analyst for two years, meaning I came up with ideas and I researched ideas for my boss. Um, we were stock pickers. And then after two years, I asked for the opportunity to directly manage part of our firm's money, um, which was a big step up in responsibility. And um, my boss, you know, he was very generous and he, I think that I, I was also a good worker. And so he trusted me um, with a decent amount of his own money uh, because most of our firm's capital was his to, to manage. And I was, I think, 24 when I started managing money. So it was like a relatively early time to do that. And, but to me, that was just par for the course. I said, even if that's early by most people's standards, like for me, it shouldn't be early because like, I'm, I'm the person who's always overachieving. Um, it was just kind of a matter of, you know, it's it just a matter of course. And I think that I had, um, ultimately, I think I had the misfortune of having a lot of early success. My first full year managing money, I had a really, really good year. It, it coincided with a strong year in the stock market. So there was certainly a lot of luck and just the environment being um, conducive to success. But I think I also legitimately had a good, a great start to my career. And um, December 31st or whatever the last trading day was in 2013, and I just capped off like a really good year and I was going to make a pretty good amount of money for someone my age. I think at that moment, I had an experience like what you had at your graduation where I thought like, like to feel better, like what is, what is going on here? And I was just like, okay, like this is the, like, is this it? And um, I kind of knew like that wasn't a great way to feel after having put so much of myself into my job and at least nominally achieving success, but I didn't really feel much. Um, and um, I kind of noticed at that point that something was off. And then the next year I struggled much more to outperform. Like I didn't even lose money, but it was, it was so stressful not to outperform. Like it, it, I'm, I'm trying to not police what I'm saying right now, because I think that I remember hearing from peers, from friends who meant completely well, they'd say like, Oh, you're not even like having a bad year. You're not even having a bad, bad time. Like it, this is part of this job. There's ups and downs. And I knew all that. Um, but I think it was so hard for me to hear this idea that, um, like you're not even doing that poorly because internally I felt so terrible. I felt like I was completely failing. And that's when kind of the second uh, major experience that I had with depression started. Um, that's when I went back to therapy. Uh, for, well, that's when I started therapy for the first time as an adult. Um, I went back a couple of times in my 20s. And um, that was a really important experience because I think that it reminds me of this concept that I learned in school from, from when I studied social work. Um, this idea of uh, disenfranchised grief. So I took a class on grief and loss, which was a wonderful class. And um, like I was saying that depression is a response to loss or can be a response to loss. I was again having this type of experience in my opinion, where 
I think I was depressed because I was, again, losing, further losing my sense of the best achiever or this massive outperformer. And, um, you know, that was familiar. I'd seen some of that before, but I think this time my environment wasn't very supportive and that's what makes it disenfranchised. So like externally, and I think this is probably something that's particularly a problem with high performers because when they're not cutting it according to their internal standards, they're still succeeding at quite high levels by most other people's standards. And so that often causes the environment to say, but you're still doing well, like, but you're still doing okay. Like you really have nothing to feel bad about or to feel depressed about. And I definitely, I think, got some of that experience. And I think that just made it harder. Um, luckily, like I, you know, muddled through and I kept trying therapy. I went to a couple different therapists. Um, but I think that that concept is really important. Um, like for anyone listening, like if you feel depressed, if you feel like something's not right and people around you say you have no reason to feel that way, your feelings are your feelings. So like, don't, don't, don't trust what they're saying. Trust that their intentions are good. That's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's very important to remember that like your feelings just are your feelings. And this is again, part of this process of having alignment between what you feel and what you know you feel. Because when everyone keeps telling you you shouldn't feel this way, that causes further depression. Maybe it causes the kind of burying that you, that you talked about, Rob, or some other um, ultimately not very constructive response. And it's, it's like a very isolating thing, right? And I, I like that's like the concept of this show, right? It's exactly that. It's everything can look great on the outside, and yet we don't feel the way we need to or should. And like, I think that that's where a lot of the high performers, high achiever types, like we end up in those spaces and like, you're, you know, like you're managing a hedge fund well, you're managing a fund. Right. And like Lauren was trying out for team Canada and yet okay. like literally it's the same experience. Like I don't feel good. And yet everybody else is telling me I am super successful. And I think like, that piece right there is that's the whole point of the show, right? Is your feelings are valid. You need to get help. And if your therapist like mine did told me that I wasn't depressed enough because I could get up and go to work every day, that's a very like distant feeling that just sends you down this rabbit hole where I did give up for six years asking for help because I felt like no one understood me. And that caused like what Julie will, will say um, in, in the podcast from a few weeks ago is it's like burying meat, rotting meat under a carpet in your kitchen. That's yeah. literally what happened to me. <laughs> it's a very graphic, but helpful analogy is it festers. Yeah. It is exactly what she said. She's like, I'm sorry for the analogy. It's gross, but it's the only thing that makes sense. And it is so true. And, and what a, what a confusing experience to have as, as a high achiever, high performer, where like you're really maybe for the first time getting super in touch with an emotion, albeit a negative one. And then people around you are telling you there's no way you should be feeling this look, you're doing so great. You're doing all of this stuff. You're doing so great. Well, I don't feel great. Now I'm even more confused and feel guilty about the way that I'm feeling. Right. There's like a, the guilt about the depression. Yeah. yeah. And like Rob was saying, it is particularly um, troubling and frustrating when it helped, when it comes from the people who are supposed to be helping you. Like, it sucks to hear that you've had some not so great experiences in therapy, Rob. Um, or like, I, I listened to the you, you know about all of them. <laughs> yeah, and, and and to be honest, like finding a good therapist is very very hard to begin with, and then on top of that, finding a good fit between a good therapist and you is is very hard. So it's like a funnel. It's like first I have to find a good therapist, then I have to find one that fits, then it has to be like the right timing. So like, there's a lot of things that have to align for therapy to make a lot of progress um, at a given point. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a problem that needs to be worked on more. Um, like, I don't think it just is what it is. I think it can be worked on. Like I'm sure there are people working on it, but like 
right now the process of getting help or finding help is so like 18th century. It's like, well, like I know this one person who once went to therapy and so I'll just try that person, but I really know nothing about that person. And it's just like, it's just very kind of poor referral methods and it needs to improve. Um, but to, to kind of go back to the content of what you're saying, Rob, it's, it's really tough because I think, um, asking for help requires going out on a limb. It requires being vulnerable. And once you've made the decision to say like, this isn't right, I need to get help and ask for help. And then to ask for help and to be told something that really isn't very helpful or nice or which is worse, like unhelpful, that that's an awful place to be. Um, I think the first therapist that I saw as an adult, um, I guess it must have been in 2014, she's relatively unhelpful. Like she was very impatient. She didn't seem to, she didn't seem to appreciate how stuck and full of self-hate I was at the time. Um, I don't think she was a particularly good listener. Like I even, I think once or twice she might've even like fallen asleep in therapy, which was, <laughs> which is like a really awful thing to do. Um, no. I don't know if she, I don't know if she had, was on medications or something, but even if she was like, she didn't tell me. So, and this happens from time to time. And um, I just didn't have a good experience, but I will say that um, I'm so thankful that I kept going and I tried someone else. Um, and I think that first experience that I had with a therapist when I was in college was a good enough one where, um, it made me realize that you can have a lot of progress and a great relationship with your therapist. However, if I had that kind of crappy therapist first, I can totally imagine why some people quit because they say like, Oh, like, you know, I put myself out there. I invested all this time in, at least in the U S a great deal of money, um, and this is how I get treated. Like, what am I, what am I supposed to do after this? Um, so yeah, I think it's kind of like an initial conditions thing where I, I was, I was lucky that my initial condition was, was good. Yeah. I, I yeah. think like, Oh, go ahead, Lauren. I was just going to say um, what you're touching on too, in terms of, you know, finding the right fit for you with, uh, personality of the therapist, because really it is a relationship. And if your personalities don't align at all, it's going to be hard to establish that, that trust that you really need. Um, but the other thing is I don't, I generally believe that a lot of people don't understand how a true high achiever functions. Mm -hmm. So high achievers are totally based on deficit strategies that, mm -hmm are completely sold on external means of validating. They look anywhere except for themselves to say like, okay, am I doing this right? Am I okay right now? Um, and they will do anything at any cost in order to succeed, whether that is at a detriment to themselves or not. So when you say like, well, I'm, I'm in work and I had this great year and then I get into the next year. And although I'm not technically doing poorly, I'm not losing money compared to my standard of last year, I wasn't where I wanted to be. So I think of, you know, someone who's not that familiar with a high achiever would say, well, they're measuring it based off of something that they've accomplished before. So that shouldn't be that much of a problem. Whereas I look at that and that's red flags everywhere because it's a number. It's an, it's an arbitrary number that you can't control whether or not you get there again. There are so many things out of your control. And, you know, you even said it yourself. It was a really good year for the market. That's yeah. a thing that you can't control. So if you're in the next year, and let's say it was a horrible year for the market, but you were still up, that should be a huge success. Yeah. And I think that um, what you said about deficit strategy is it really hits the nail on the head because when I look back on how I've operated for, I guess, most of my life now, it's primarily been through deficit strategies or, you know, I probably had shame as fuel as well. Mm -hmm. And shame as fuel is a deficit strategy. Um, I would also say that one of my tendencies has been just a tremendous need to try to dominate 
not necessarily other people, but to try to dominate a system in a way where I could control it. And I think that that was maybe just a way of coping for me, because I think that if I couldn't control the trajectory that I was on in a way that was um, acceptable to me, it just gave me outrageous amounts of anxiety. And so, Rob, sometimes I talk with you just casually and I hear, like, I think it's awesome that you're trying this new therapist. You're trying like very new types of therapy. And I, I totally encourage that. I also hear some of the frustration you have where you say like, well, sometimes I feel like I'm going in circles or sometimes I feel like I'm going backwards. And like, I just like, I want to get it going. And that language, it totally is familiar to me <laughs> because underlying that, that language is the desire to control and to be able to solve something. And maybe that comes from being like an engineer, but I think it actually comes more from being a high achiever, whether you're an engineer or not. Um, I think that high achievers and I guess high achievers who kind of blend into being perfectionists, they have this tendency to really try to dominate um, situations. And I'm, I'm certainly one of those people. And I, you know, it's been years of trying to, to learn to undo because um, like Lauren was saying, like there's so much that I cannot control there. There's so much that's attributed to luck or just happenstance. Um, and it's not fun to admit that it's not fun to admit that. Like, I, I think it's much more comforting to be able to think that if I put in a huge amount of hard work and I study and I prepare, then I'm going to, with very high probability or with certainty, I'm going to get the result that I want. I think Rob, you were talking about this in, in the episode where you talked about your story and, um, Oh, like when you worked at the mining company, but, um, but that's just not how it works. And I think that when in, tw in 2014, when I was having this depression or this, this, uh, this feeling of catastrophe because I wasn't outperforming, I think it was this, this mental model that was really breaking down. Like this mental model had always worked for me. Like if I just put in a huge amount of work, just try harder, put in more hours, more effort, then I'm going to get the result that I want. It worked in high school. It mostly worked in college. It worked in, you know, up until that point in my working career. And when the model starts to break down, it's very, very scary. And it, it, like, I didn't know what to do. And I think that's what, that's what led to depression. Um, I think again, it, it's like for me, depression was a response to loss. And for me, the loss there might've been like, I was just losing my sense of how things worked. It's like, it's not like that. It's not, if you just put in more work, you get the result that you want. Um, so I slowly, I was forced by the world, um, to accept that, that the reality is, Generally speaking, the more work you put in, generally the better the result that you get or the closer you get to the result that you want. But there's a huge amount of variation that comes, just bad luck, circumstance. Maybe you're in the wrong organization. Maybe it's the market sucks. Like it could be a number of things. Um, that's just reality. And, yeah, and know, I think, reality yeah. can be painful. <laughs> it definitely was for all of us. <laughs> no, and I, and I think what you said is right. You know, we, like we talked about beliefs and how they're formed and, but basically they're all formed before you're seven or eight years old. And it's like up to that point, it does work, right? Like when you go to school and you study, you do get better grades. That's how that works. And like that, and then that gets reinforced like it did for me basically my whole athletic career, the more I trained, the better I played. That's mm -hmm. like almost a one-to-one -one comparison, even at MIT, right? Like it took me a while to figure it out, but the more I studied and the like more effectively, I guess I studied as well, the better I did. And that's the, that's the part I think it's hard is like, if you, if you step out into the working world and you know, that's your experience, like it gets dark real quick. But Ellis, what I wanted to ask you about, 
is the pivot, right? Like you went from working in finance, these like high paying, high stress, like very high performance, high achieving jobs. And now you're stepping into like, you took a master's degree in social work. And now you're stepping into, I believe it's to work with people with an eating disorder, but feel free to correct me if that, if that was incorrect. Um, do you want to talk about that pivot for us? Like, how did you decide that this is the path that I want to go on? Definitely. So that's, that's, I would, I would say that this is kind of the second big part of, of my story. Um, I had been thinking on and off for years about making this career change. Um, but I think earlier in my life, including when I was in college, I didn't even realize that it was a true option for me. Um, like of our classmates, a very small number go into jobs like this, like almost no one that I know from college did this. And, um, I think that my experience with my therapist at MIT medical was my first up close and personal experience with a therapist. And it was a good experience. I think that really planted the seed. Um, but even then I, I had never really considered it seriously. And I think that this is one area where, um, I think cultural influences, I think impacted me a good deal. So I am from an immigrant family. Uh, my parents came from Korea and I see this with a lot of my Asian American friends who are like my generation born here, but their parents immigrated. There is a tremendous amount of pressure from the culture and often directly from the families to achieve and to achieve at least stability. And what that means is going into like safe professions. So a lot of our classmates who are Asian become medical doctors. Um, some go into law. I would say at this point, like tech is a very kind of safe place to go because it's high paying. It's very prestigious. And um, finance is obviously one of those areas. And so for me, finance, it wasn't just about pragmatism. Like I actually really enjoyed a lot about it. Like even now it's like something that I still enjoy. Um, so it wasn't just about that, but it had this very important feature of having the potential to make a lot of money. And with that money would come stability and safety. And so I think that's kind of, that's an ingrained belief system in the culture that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And I think that influenced me a lot when I was younger. And so in my early twenties and my mid twenties, I was still playing that out. I was still trying to make as much money as I could. I was still trying to achieve in these fields of, of finance and investing. Um, but each time I went back to therapy, I think I had a little bit more curiosity about this as like a career. And I, you know, I would still kind of think like, Oh, like that's kind of interesting. I think I could actually maybe be good at this kind of work. But then another part of me would say like, no, but that's not really for you or but that's not really reality. It would, you know, it just kind of squash it. Um, so it was a long journey. It was, it was years and years. And then as, as I got into my late twenties, I started to consider it, consider it more seriously. And, um, I left investing, I want to say like four years ago or so. And then I, maybe three years ago. And then I briefly worked in a tech job and I didn't have a great experience. I was only there about a year and I got laid off. And, um, at the end of that, I had this important moment where I said, okay, I'm kind of at a crossroads. I can keep going and looking for better versions of this kind of work, or I can go explore this thing that I have this gut feeling and intuition about that I could be good at this and enjoy this. And that was going and studying to be a therapist. And, um, I was lucky enough to be practically in a position to do it. Um, like, so my wife and I, we talked about it and with her support, I decided like, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And that's when I applied to school. Um, so that was 20, 2018. And I just finished my degree recently. And, um, I haven't looked back since like I've, I'm really, really excited to start my career in social work as a therapist. Um, yeah, I will be working with people who have eating disorders. Um, while I was in school, I worked with people who have drug addictions. That was exceptionally like rewarding work. And I really enjoyed working with those clients. And um, 
I think this brings up like another important theme um, that I want to pass on to anyone who, to, to anyone who's listening, which is um, it's like the idea of natural multiplicity. So everyone has many different sides to them. Like, and that included me, but I think for a long time, I didn't let some of those sides kind of come to the forefront and to get developed. And part of my maturation process was allowing those other sides of myself to become more fully developed and then just kind of like integrating everything and not having to have one dominate the others, one force forcing the others away, but just like letting these different sides of myself coexist in a way that was healthy. And so like, that's why I say like, you know, like my, you know, the side of me that was very high achieving and interested in investing, like there's still part of me that is interested in that. And I can do it as a hobby. I can do it on the side. Um, and now there's this other side of me that has become more prominent in my life, um, which is the side that's driving me to be um, a therapist. So like, I'm kind of using language from uh, IFI, IFS internal family systems, which is a therapy model that I really admire. I think Rob, you're probably using some of it recently. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> because yeah, of your so, recommendation. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, so I'm not trained in it yet, but I, I've read books on it. Like I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. Yeah. And, and like, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit, right? And it's like when I was looking for a psychologist, I know I talked to you about it and you recommended like someone who does IFS. And then I actually found my psychologist through, I think it was Psychology Today or something. I Googled yeah. like IFS practitioners Edmonton. And she actually does like a really cool mix of new therapies. So we're doing EMDR, we're doing IFS. We had this one called ART, it's accelerated resolution therapy. Mm -hmm. And then we've also done some stuff like ego state therapy and some timeline stuff. And I really feel like, actually, I feel like it's helping me like, yeah, there's been ups and downs, but I feel like it's helping me. And I think like having someone who, openly experiments on me. I actually think that because she's a very, she's very smart and she really thinks about these things and she's always learning. Like, I think we're able to make progress where some of the other ones, like I remember doing CBT and basically it was like, well, just don't think about that. And it's like, that did not help me at all. <laughs> yeah. And like certain types of therapies work very well on certain types of people. And like, I think CBT is great um, in the right time or place. Like I think IFS is great for the right time or place. There's a lot of people where I think it's not the right fit, but another important thing is like therapy is not just one thing, um, especially now because I feel like so many new types of therapies are developing. They're not really new. They've been developed by these great thinkers and researchers over 30 years, but they're, they've really picked up momentum, you know, in like the last, I would say 10 or 20 years. And that's so great for people who, who have the ability to access them. Um, so I think even just like raising awareness of the different types of therapy is a great thing to do because certain things just aren't going to work that well for people. Like kind of psychoanalytic therapy is not going to work for some people. CBT is not going to work for some people. Um, even like EMDR is a very powerful therapy and most people have no idea what it is, but it's wonderful that it does exist. <laughs> it's it's good for trauma and ptsd and stuff so if you're out there and you're looking like definitely check well i mean give it a roll if you're if that's what you're looking for it's definitely worth researching um one thing that i want to say is i think that i feel so much better now um than i did when i was 24 25 27 like i was in and out of depression for years and it's not that I don't have like down periods and periods where I feel crappy about myself. Like I definitely do, but I think that my general state is much better. And I would attribute that to a lot of different factors. Like one is working on myself over the years, going to therapy. One is like, I have like really wonderful, the really wonderful support of my wife. Like I have a family that loves me. Like there's a lot of things that aren't just about like what I did. But one thing that I think really mattered a lot for what I did do that, that changed the outcome was I really changed my environment in terms of my work environment. So when I look at myself, I think I am a much better natural fit for something like social work or therapy 
than for something like investing. And I think that I felt very constrained because of these cultural factors or maybe being a high achiever, there's an overlap between the two um, where I felt like I could only do these things where, where it's just like a very kind of competitive and zero sum type of work such as investing. Um, but I think that over time I realized that like, I would rather be in an environment that isn't so much about having a fixed pie and getting the most of it, but trying to like grow the pie or trying to just be like helpful to people who don't necessarily like have the resources um, that they should have. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why I feel so much better. Um, so going to therapy is good. And I'm really glad that I went and I'm sure I will go back again at some point, but change of environment can be really, really powerful um, in terms of like improving someone's overall life and mental state. Absolutely. I love that. And, and part of, you know, your journey and, and what's made you feel so much better too, is, is having the courage to take that first step to even acknowledge the conversation that's going on in your head. Like, Hey, I invested a lot of time and energy into this path that I'm on right now. And I'm actually considering branching off from it and, and saying, I've gotten what I can out of this. And now I'm saying that I think I need something else. And, and a lot of people would get stuck at that point because they're, they're, you're so afraid to leave everything that you work so hard for, but the conversation has to turn from what is going to make me a happy human being? What is going to make my life sustainable? And I think that's like one of the most important questions you can ask. I completely agree. I think it, it requires stepping out of like your normal way of thinking and your normal way of being honestly um, to be able to make a big decision like that. And I mean, like I said, it wasn't just some overnight thing. It was probably a 10 year or so process for me. And that was my journey. Um, but I think that if there is that voice inside of people, it's important to at least talk it out. Like no one has to do anything immediately. So you can talk about it with friends. You can talk about it in therapy, but just talking it out even is such a powerful thing and it helps people sort out what's going inside, going on inside of them. I think what's not healthy is there's some curiosity or there's some seed and then some voice comes in and just squashes it and says, no, you can't, you can't think that way. You can't talk that way. Um, like to use, to use an analogy. So like your, your podcast is, uh, is it deconstructing the high performance narrative? Is that what it is? Dismantling, dismantling, yeah. dismantling the high performance narrative. And so like performance is, is a really, um, big word, like in my old career, it's like, what's your performance in investing? Like, how has this person performed? And, um, just to use some language from my old career. So like, there's, there's a lot of different ways to get performance when you're investing. So one way is you can make what you perceive to be very, very safe bets, but you can put every dollar that you have and more, you could borrow money. So you can put 200% of the money that you have into that safe bet. And then that safe bet will give you some return, but because you put everything and more into it, that's how you get your performance. And that's kind of how I did things for a lot of my life. Um, I was making a series of very, very, we would call it leveraged or just like, you know, it's putting all your eggs in one basket um, type of bets on what I knew and what was safe. So for me, that was studying and academic performance and eventually turning to work. And um, it's a great strategy as long as it works. Um, but what happens when you put 200% of your money on something and it starts to not work is things begin to implode. And that, that happens to hedge <laughs> funds. It happens to people. It happened to me. So for me, when my strategy of putting everything that I had and more into just work and then 2014 came and it didn't, it didn't even go badly, it just didn't go really well, um, things started to feel like they were imploding. And that set me down kind of a crisis and, and I eventually had to reformulate and find, find ways of adjusting and, and changing things. So like that's one way of 
performing. And I think that a lot of high performers can probably relate to that. And I just want to present like another way of performing, which is you can do things that um, are a little bit riskier, but, or perceived to be a little bit riskier, but you don't have to do everything at a hundred or 200%. You can try things. You can do things on the side. You can talk to people in other careers that you're interested in. Or if you're in college, you can go to a company that you'd never think about working at just out of curiosity. So I think it's about um, opening up your mind a little bit and not just going a hundred or 200% at everything. Um, and so it's like, it's just realizing that the world can be a bigger place than you perceive it to be because it really is. And um, having some openness and willingness to try those different things. And um, really, in my opinion, the most successful people, and like there's no like objective definition of success, but to me, the most successful people to me are the people who went and thought differently. They went and did something that was not that common or that really kind of spoke to them. And they followed a path, um, like a, it's a passion that they had, and they followed it over many, many years and they built on it over time. And it, they didn't achieve success in the way that I was trying to achieve success, where I was just, just ramming everything I had into the small thing that I knew. I think they were trying to create something new. I try to ram it in there every day. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I still do it sometimes too. There's more, there's more than one way to perform. That's basically the summary of my, of my long statement. I, I love, I actually like really love that. I just want to say, I really love that. And and this interview, I've really, I've really loved this interview. Ellis, we're, we're wrapping up here. Where can people find you if like they're listening, they want to reach out or if they, you know, want to talk to you? Um, I would say LinkedIn is probably the best way to go. So I'm connected with you on LinkedIn. Ellis Kim is my name. Um, I should just come up, come up on a search. You can DM me or you can, yeah, just reach me there and uh, I'll, I'll respond pretty quickly. So if you're looking for Ellis, just you can check the podcast notes. It'll be in there. I'll drop it in there also, but he's also connected to me as well. And if you want, if you also want, you can email us highperformancenarrative at gmail.com and I'll get you his, his contact info. Lauren, how about you? Where can people find you? Yeah. Um, my biggest platform is Instagram. You can look me up at Lauren Willie 17. Uh, you can also feel free to email me Lauren at elite Um, or you can look me up on the elite high performance website and, uh, schedule a session through there. Perfect. And for me, obviously follow dismantling the high performance narrative on Instagram. You can follow us all also on LinkedIn. You can follow us also on YouTube for everything. And then for me, if you want to book me as a speaker, or if you want to talk about any leadership or maintenance and reliability services, just send us an email, highperformancenarrative at gmail.com, or you can check out my website, robsreliability.com for that. But until next time, really appreciate Ellis, you know, your thoughts were your thoughts were incredible. And I, I knew this about you already, but you were, you were born to come on the mic. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I'll support your podcast however I can. I'll def- I'm definitely already sharing it with people. Awesome. I love to hear that. And if you're listening, definitely share it to people that you know, and that would benefit with listening to this show and subscribe to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative on your favorite platform. Everyone, thanks for listening. Lauren, Ellis, thank you. And we'll see you guys all next week. Bye.